Welcome to another edition of Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Robert Brenner, UCLA historian and co-editor of Catalyst, joins us for an extended conversation on the state of the economy, mainstream politics, and neoliberalism. Welcome to another edition of Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weissman. Today we devote the entire podcast to an extended conversation with UCLA historian and co-editor of Catalyst, Robert Brenner. We spoke to Robert Brenner in our inaugural podcast in February, then looking at the political landscape that brought us the age of Trump. Today we begin with the state of the economy and then look at mainstream politics, drawing out the intimate connection between the two, which is to say we'll talk about neoliberalism. Robert Brenner is a professor of history at UCLA, and he's director of the Center for Social Theory and Comparative History, and the author of, among many other works, The Economics of Global Turbulence, The Boom and the Bubble, The Brenner Debates, and Merchants and Revolution. Bob, more importantly, or just as importantly, is also the co-editor and founder of the new journal, Catalyst, published under the auspices of Jacobin Magazine. Welcome, Bob Brenner. Thank you very much, Susie. It's great to be here. Well, let's just cut to the chase and talk about the performance of the economy since all the financial pages and the Fed Reserve chairwoman has been saying yet again just how well the economy is going. And in fact, she's proclaimed that the economy is going so well that the Fed has decided that it must slowly raise interest rates and reduce the flow of credit in order to prevent, wait for it, the outbreak of inflation. So why is she saying this? Has the economy really turned the corner? Well, the official unemployment rate does look very low. And it gives you the impression, because at the level it is now, in the past, it often was full employment. So it's 4.4% today. And that is, in uh, normal terms, very low. If there is a tight labor market, then It means that the demand for labor is outrunning the supply so that workers' leverage is very high and the Fed has to worry, supposedly, about wage growth running out of control and forcing prices to rise. So that's the official story, in fact. Tight labor market, time to raise interest rates and slow the economy. In actuality, though, this is, in the now officially approved language, bullshit. Unemployment rate looks low, but in actuality, this doesn't take into account how many people have dropped out, totally left the labor force. They are unemployed, but they're not counted as unemployed because they're not looking for work. And as a result, they are not counted in the labor force. So if we add the number of people who are out of the labor force but not looking for work, to those who are in the labor force but who are actually unemployed, the unemployment rate is still very high. Put another way, the percentage of people who have a job as a percentage of the total population between 
18 and 62, you know, the possible labor force, it's still much lower than it was when the crisis hit in 2007-8 and still lower compared to, say, 2000. Simply put, we still have a huge unemployment problem and a slack, not a tight uh, labor market. And we're going to come back to this because I want to ask you further on that, but continue your point. Well, simply, I would say that if and this is going to be totally not news to your listeners. Not only is there not a tight labor market, but as a result, of course, there's no wage increase to speak of. We have the had some of the lowest wage growth in in history. You have to go start going back to the depression to find anything uh, like this. Uh, for example, wages since the Great Recession have been growing at. Point six tenth of 1% per year. Okay, so just in essence, you said that the conventional wisdom is hogwash, to put it nicely. And if, if it's the case that we shouldn't focus on, on unemployment, are there other indicators that would say that the economy, and I don't mean that we shouldn't focus on unemployment, but since, you know, they, sure. the conventional wisdom is that unemployment is at historic lows now. So, but is the economy nevertheless doing well? And of course, as we've seen, and as uh, President Trump constantly tells us, the stock market is going up and up and up and up, and it's breaking all records. Well, again, like the official unemployment rate, which is low, the stock market is breaking all records. It's been an incredible run for five, six years already, almost the whole time since the Great Recession. But the problem is, like the official unemployment rate, it means about zero about the real state of the economy. The point is that by every real indicator of economic performance, the economy is not only not doing well, not only doing badly, but it is doing, and I need, <laughs> I really want you listeners to hear this. It's doing worse than at any time in the last century, except for the period of the Great Depression. We are living through a historically catastrophic economy. So, okay, so let's get the picture on that. Okay, so, I mean, the standard, a couple standard indicators. One is GDP. And we've had a long-term decline since 1973, decade by decade, of output of goods and services in the economy. And this hit rock bottom in the period since the Great uh, Recession. But the real key, and, and it's really what everybody talks about, and rightly so, is labor productivity. And labor productivity means how much each person is producing as a worker or per hour. And this is really, it is rightly thought to be at the center of what determines uh, whether the economy is doing well or doing badly. Because leaving aside distribution, it's telling us how fast the economy is increasing its capacity to raise living standards, its potential to increase income per person. So obviously, it, the how much you can 
distributed to every person depends on how much each person produces, and that is the what labor productivity is measuring, output per person. That will determine um, what could be income per, per person. Now, the point is that like everything else, labor productivity has been catastrophic. Now, if you – I'm talking now in terms of a century. So labor productivity dec- has declined decade by decade, business cycle by business cycle since 1973. And in the period since the Great Recession, labor productivity has hit a level that really we've never seen before. It is – has been growing for the last nine years, almost a decade, at 1% or 1.1%. That gives you an idea of what we are up against in terms of trying to get decent living standards. So hold on, Robert Brenner. So labor productivity is usually not painted in the terms that you've just done so, and it's a controversial issue. Hasn't the high-tech boom and innovation been brought about by high labor productivity? I mean, look at, we've got all of these new industries, high-tech industries, logistics, we've got Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, et al., and they've changed the productivity landscape, haven't they? Well, this is one story about the economy, and I emphasize the word story, it's very similar, actually, to what was long the case. This famous economist named Robert Solow said for a long period of time, the technological revolution represented by computers was showing everywhere except in productivity statistics. And likewise, it's the same for today's super tech revolutionary firms, which are very productive, but compose only a very small part of the economy. And so the reason why, despite the appearance of these super firms, why productivity is growing so slowly is that, it doesn't seem to me, is really a mystery. The reason is that investment meaning the growth of plant and equipment and software, is growing exceedingly slowly. Now, why is the growth of investment? The term is called capital stock, but our listeners can forget that now. <laughs> what The point is that by any measure, investment is growing very slowly. Now, invest, why is investment so important? It tells us how fast the economy is equipping workers how big the amount of plant and machinery they're getting to work with. And so that is really key to how fast workers' productivity can grow because clearly they, they can't increase their output by you know working harder, only a little bit. Really, the way they increase their output is being given more and better plant and equipment. And Again, like with output, like with labor productivity, like with wages, the investment is at an all-time low. And that is, in my view, the real problem 
for the ultimate problem, you can say, for the economy, because it's where something could be done, presumably, to get investment up. And since it isn't, there's no reason to expect anything but terrible productivity performance. In other words, we've had terrible investment performance, and therefore, we have terrible productivity performance. And I would just say one thing to add. Everything I've been talking about, it would be nice to do it sometime, is all these variables, all these indicators for the U.S. are really paralleled for the world economy. And the picture is not really any different. If you look anywhere in the world economy, it's a little better in Asia, but still a very bad performance for a long time. So I just want to go over this question of low investment again because, Robert Brenner, this was a key problem in the period just following the crash of 2007 and eight. We're now, what, almost 10 years? We are 10 years. 10 years in. 10 years in, and for the longest time, the problem was, you know, people were asking the question, what kind of capitalism if they, if capitalists don't want to convert their money into capital, and they weren't investing, they were hoarding it, and all the rest of it. But then on the other hand, if you read the business pages, or the Financial Times, or the conventional wisdom of all the pundits, is that, and it goes back to my previous question about the landscape of the new kinds of industries. And they're all about automation. Every day there's an article about another sector that will be automated, including, you know, the low-wage sector in fast food and even in farm labor. So it seems like there is some investment, even if it's just investing in ways to cut out labor through automation. Is this significant or is this just a side thing? Well, I think this my opinion, uh, it's just my opinion, although not only my opinion. I think people could get a very clear idea of this. If you look at the Economic Policy Institute's website, they've just produced a new study which goes very systematically through what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it very briefly. People can look it up and get the picture better. When we're talking about automation, right, we're talking about the replacement of workers by machines. So what this is saying is that we are needing fewer, a minimal outcome of this is that we are needing fewer and fewer people to produce the same amount of goods. But I just said that we know that we're not able to produce the same amount of goods with fewer and fewer people, at least in any big sense, because labor productivity has been growing so slowly. So automation, if it's having this big effect, should have its effect through the, so the channel of rising labor productivity. And we've just seen that is not happening. We could, to put the icing on the cake, we might say to get this automation, we would also presumably be getting high investment to substitute for workers. But we've just seen that investment is Again, I emphasize these are catastrophically low rates of growth. So, okay, the obvious question then, I guess to go back to it, is why is the economy doing so badly? Now, when you've been, um, you know, when I've talked to you before, 
You've argued that the problem is overcapacity on a world scale. And for those who know, you know, the Brenner sort of view of the world economy, this is not going to be new. But you've shown how one after another of the new manufacturing powers, especially in Asia, have come online. And instead of innovating, they produce the same thing that's already been produced, essentially hijacking the technology and all of the expense that we went to in the beginning. But they had the difference that they could do it cheaper because they paid less in wages. So as you said, Robert Brenner, that's much too much supply compared to demand in industry after industry. And if you think about it in terms of cars, you can just visualize it. But it keeps prices from rising enough compared to cost and leading to the falling rate of profit. And that in turn has led to the falling growth of investment and wages and ultimately government spending. And that's what's happened on a world scale. So is this still, in your opinion, as you've written elsewhere, the underlying problem for the really catastrophic nature of the economy? And I'm assuming that you're not just talking about the United States. Yeah, that's my view. Yeah. And uh, uh, I would say the link between that issue of profitability, which is as I see it, the key, and the downward pressure on the rate of profit, which has been a world phenomenon, is that that fall in profitability, downward pressure on the rate of profit, has had its effect by reducing demand. Basically, what it's meant is that you have low profitability, so you don't get much investment, Employers are trying to get profitability up, so they cut wages. Government ceases to spend to support the employers. And all of this means that the channel that goes from falling rate of profit to the economy is a crisis, really, of aggregate demand. And that's uh, kind of the big picture. And I think the kind of pressures that I've tried to argue exist in the world economy have not gone away. They're still there. But I would say that by now, my analysis has become in a significant way quite outmoded because although I still would argue what I did, I think since around 1980, as a result of this crappy economy – is that there's been a huge change, a new development, which has only exacerbated the economy's weakness, but resulted in a huge change in how the economy functions. And this is the rise of neoliberalism. Okay, so we're now getting into the nitty-gritty, Robert Brenner, in our inaugural Jacobin radio podcast and in your inaugural editorial for Catalyst, and you can find subscription information on the Jacobin magazine webpage. Thank you, Susie. I like to plug. You have pinpointed neoliberalism, and it's something that everybody talks about now. But you're saying, if I've got this right, that it's something different than what the conventional wisdom thinks is neoliberalism. So can you explain? Yeah. So not to put a fine point on it or to be too subtle or to make necessary distinctions that I'd probably make under duress, what I would say is that the conventional view of neoliberalism emphasizes, so to speak, marketization, putting everything under the control of the free market. And privatization. Yeah, privatization would be a very good example of this because it takes stuff 
that's formerly been under the state, for example, and now it's in the market. And so it, it's subject to directly the laws of capitalism. But what I think should be understood to characterize neoliberalism is almost precisely the opposite. It is not the subjection of everything to market forces, supply and demand, so to speak. It is actually the removal of key pieces of the economy and their subjection to political control, ultimately through governments, ultimately through political parties. So what we would be talking about is saying that what neoliberalism is about is creating one after another means to redistribute income to the very rich. The point is neoliberalism is a response to the weakness of the economy. And what is remarkable is that the way this response has taken place, you know, there's only so much you can distribute. So there's only so much in a normal economy that you can get to the rich and the capitalists. You got to give them more profits. And the only way you can give them more profits is to essentially austerity, cut wages, cut social spending, and they get more profits that way. But if the pie is growing slowly, what it means is that that is not going to be, even if capitalists get almost all of the what they produce and workers get hardly any, if the pie is hardly growing, they won't get that much. What has happened, therefore, is there's been a switch away from production to redistribution, to ripoff, and that ripoff is viable because the beneficiaries are just a tiny, tiny drop of the economy, top 1% and above. So let me just get this right because you're kind of saying, I think, that the economy is in private hands but profits are in public hands. You could say, and this is not – I didn't make up this phrase – is uh, yes, that in a sense what we have had is the socialization of profits for the rich and the privatization of the losses for everybody else. It's slightly incorrect because it implies that sort of the pie, that essentially it's about profits and wages and like that. But actually, the infernal thing about neoliberalism is it's taking stuff that's already kind of in the hands of us and giving it to them. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm speaking with Robert Brenner co-editor of Catalyst and UCLA Historian. So it's, just to put it very crudely, socialism for the point-tenth of one percent, and even more crudely, a form of fascism for everybody else. <laughs> or exactly. Slavery. Yeah, yeah, or you yeah. could say socialism yeah. for them, capitalism for us. Right. Capitalism is not a great system but if you're not running it. It's the only place it. the free market it actually operates, right. is in with right. the ability of workers to compete for wages. Okay, so continue in this analysis because I want this to really stick in. Okay, so the, how can this be? How can this redistribution upward take place? I'm saying the idea, the key to it is that it frees the rich 
and the capitalists from this nasty process of actually having to invest and, you know, hire workers, buy new plant and equipment, and actually have to sell a product. This cuts all that out and goes cuts to the chase by politically redistributing, by political means, the income to the 1% and above. Uh, so what has happened, I mean, just to speak for a minute to the outcome, it has meant that if we look at the post-war period, income went to the top 1% to the tune of about 8 to 10% of the whole economy. And that was very, very permanent, so to speak. You look at the period from about 1943 to 1980, nothing much changed except by 1980, actually, the top 1% was getting actually only about 8%. But since then, since neoliberalism has been put into effect, the proportion of the income that has gone to the top 1% and above is 25%. So two and a half times is the change in the distribution of income has been accomplished, and not very much through the actual process of investment and profit-making, but by politically determined redistribution. So how did this happen? Well, I think we should do this in two phases. One, what were the, so to speak, mechanics or mechanisms by which the income went from the people, which is really what it was, is, to the very wealthy and the capitalists. And what I'm going to say now is really a story everyone is familiar with. I'm just not sure everyone is totally familiar with the magnitude of what has been accomplished for the top 1% in this way. So people will, of course, remember the Reagan and what happened in the Reagan administration, the first thing that happened was just ripoff, huge ripoff. That is um, massive tax breaks to the rich, which obviously had to be paid for by the rest of us. And taxation has become an ongoing field for neoliberal economy, neoliberal political redistribution. That's one. Number two we were talking earlier about the stock market and why the stock market is not a very good indication of the health of the real economy. And now people can, we could cash that out very easily. Because if we look at the stock market today, what we've seen is that it's been going up and up and up. What has been the result? It is that the relationship between stock prices and actual profits for firms is in the ratio of 30 to 1. So that what we're talking about is that the prices of stocks are 30 times profits. Now the norm is about 12%, maybe 14%. The only time this level has ever been reached before is the end of the 20s when we had a crash and the end of the 90s at the end of the stock market bubble. So bubble nomics. So we had a crash. So what is going on? I think this is a beautiful exemplification of how neoliberalism works. You can't make profits that fast by actually participating in investment, employment, and so forth. 
But you can if you're investing in the stock market. And how can you be sure, though, if you're going to invest in the stock market that stocks are going to go up? Well, that one of the key functions that the government has taken on itself through the Federal Reserve is to keep interest rates down. And those low interest rates allow cheap borrowing by the rich. They invest in stocks, and that keeps pushing stocks up. And nobody can do anything about it. And everybody watches in envy. And a tiny, tiny proportion of people benefit because only a tiny, tiny portion of people own any degree of stocks. Well, I mean, just one other aspect of this, because you said everybody remembers Reagan and the tax cuts. The other side, of course, is that he did a frontal assault on the trade union movement. And since that time, as you've written elsewhere, wages have not recovered. And so in this, most people would think, oh, interest rates are low. That means that ordinary people will have access to, say, buying homes and and things, but only if their income goes up. Exactly. And we've seen that one result of the way the system is now working is that we did have a period in which the Fed was producing money for the very well-off in a parallel way, keeping interest rates down and driving up the prices of housing. And housing gave workers the illusion that they were getting rich and making a lot of money. But the result, as we know, was that a crash took place, which should have wiped out both workers and capitalists. But the bailout took place only for the rich and the capitalists. And the result was a catastrophic loss of assets by normal people, and especially for black people. So what you accomplish through this neoliberal mode is you drive up stock values or housing values or any other asset values, and this makes money for anyone who could be in the market, so to speak, and then the crash ultimately takes place, and the bottom line is bailout. Well, let me just ask you here, because what you talked about was the upward redistribution of wealth by political means. And you also discussed earlier about, and this is really well-known, Robert Brenner, in terms of your analysis of the world economy, why it's difficult for capitalists here to make profit. We're now in an era, and you can go back to this, but maybe put it in the context of neoliberalism. We're now in an era where everybody's talking about, well, we could reinvest in the economy and restart manufacturing and certainly spend a lot of money in infrastructure and create new jobs and blah, blah, blah. And yet it never happens. And maybe you can explain why the case that there's no incentive to do that other than just to talk about it. Okay. I will. I just wanted to complete the point. You raised the question. I did a roundabout answer, which emphasized finance as another means of this upward political redistribution. That is, finance gets all these favors, gets all these privileges. Massive amounts of money are made by taking super high-risk investments. Then the leaders of the firms are paid off through not any risk, that would be too much. They don't have to take any risk. They get paid in terms of bonuses and wages and so on. So finance is another mode of this neoliberal political distribution. But I just wanted to complete the picture. You you raised, well, go back to Reagan, the flip side of this 
new period is terrible wages and stuff like that. But what I want to emphasize, and that's true, of course, but what I want to emphasize is that austerity can't begin to explain the incredible upward redistribution that is taking place because there's only so much produced. And even if capitalists get all of it, they don't get very much. So they need these big extra things, tax ripoffs, rising stock values that in two minutes give them millions and millions of dollars they could never make by just making profits, ergo this price-earnings ratio, et cetera. So the question you just asked, well, why does this continue? And why is it? Is it profit for profit's sake? Don't they get all that money with the presumption that somehow they'll invest again? Of course not. <laughs> okay. There is no presumption. That's, that's what's completely changed. And there's no willingness or idea, and we'd, we'd have to really do this at another time and talk about the full politics of this, but this is not really about in any way, and there's no fiction even about the ordinary people benefiting from this. It's quite the opposite. Now, why, nonetheless, don't capitalists invest and aren't we getting, don't we get a new boom? And that sort of goes back to what's underlying this neoliberal situation. In other words, there's two levels that account for it. One is the general problem of the growth of the economy that relates to the problem of profitability. And that is the underlying issue. There's just too much capacity. And if you look a way to see that today, look at the most powerful manufacturing economy in the world, and that's China. And if you look at China, they are unable to find profitable investment because of total overcapacity. They don't suffer very much because the state intervenes to provide credit and bail out. So the firms themselves don't run into trouble. And the very top 1% or one-tenth of 1% skims off the rest, as in the rest of neoliberalism. But what I want to emphasize is even this really dynamic Chinese economy, which has still very high rates of investment, is not capable of making profits through the way our parents, so to speak, did. They didn't earn it, and neither do people in in this economy. So, okay. I mean, it just seems to me like this is a, a suicidal cycle that we're in. As you've said, that more and more capitalists and financiers are dependent on the state to keep them going and to give them profits through bailouts and tax breaks. And is this just a never-ending cycle at some point? Can we have, like, as you're seeing now in the United States, a housing crisis, more and more homelessness, more and more people without, presumably if health care gets repealed and replaced, even more people without access to health care? In other words, with a dying population. I think dying population was a good way of getting into it because if we're talking a little bit about ideology, which we should, again, do in a different conversation about politics, what we could see is like, oh, if we were talking about someone like Hillary Clinton, she made no bones about her defense of finance and the resulting limitations 
on what she could do. She didn't make the absolute connection I'm making. But she said, look, the bankers have to fix things themselves. We can't tell them what to do. On the other hand, we can say that a minimum wage of more than $12 an hour is going to be a big problem for the economy. So that was sort of a justification for neoliberalism in terms of austerity. But now if we look at Trump, the Republicans and Trump, what are they saying about this? They're saying, look, we feel very badly about having to take away health care for people. Mm-hmm. But after all, that has to be paid for somehow. And who's going to pay for health care? It's got to be the capitalists who are making the investments, who are making the economy go. Except so, that they say something else. You know, say it's unconscionable to ask the auto workers in Detroit to pay for health care for people who can't afford it. As well, that's, if, that's their, <laughs> yeah, that's their, that's their uh, sophisticated argument. Their bottom line argument, you know this, their bottom line argument is that the job makers, the economy <laughs> makers are – are the ones who need to be protected. And even if they didn't, it's just the way they say it. It's immoral to take money from these people. It may be bad to take health care away from working people, but it's even worse to take money away from the people who have it and made it. We have one more level. There's still one more level. Well, can and I that just is... say, before you get to that level, <laughs> just one really good example? Sure. Because you've been talking about ideology and the way that this has been going on literally since the era of Reagan and before, that the mentality has changed so much that when American Airlines tried to raise wages for its workers who hadn't seen a wage increase in a long time, the investors went apoplectic and said, this is an unconscionable wealth transfer exactly. from them to us. How dare they? They're just the workers. <laughs> exactly. So I wanted to make this point because, oh, it's just a, it's a left propaganda point, but it's actually a very telling. If you look at Bannon and Bannon's backer, Mercer, Mercer, when they talk about the question of money going from the rich to the poor, They really say the opposite. What they say is that if people are incapable of making enough money, they say this explicitly, to make enough money to survive rather than taxation and welfare and all this, they should be left to die. So that's the next phase of ideology if we move further into the Trump era. I just wanted to finish this discussion of the economics of neoliberalism in a way. It's on the one hand this upward redistribution, but there's another side of it which is equally infernal and complements it very well. And we've already seen a bit of it, which is that on the one hand, they depend on redistribution. But because they're depending on redistribution and not investment in plant and equipment, they no longer want to spend money or have the government spend money in any way of providing the basic conditions for private investment. They are no longer willing to carry out the public investment that everyone since Adam Smith realized had to be the function of the government. So just to take a couple quick indicators of this, 
during the post-war boom, the government was paying about 4% a year on roads and highways, education, and so forth. That is, they're investing 3 to 4% more each year. Now, in the 90s and 2000, it was down about one5 to 2%. It's been, for the last five years, 1%. So hardly any public investment. And what that's meant is that the age of the government capital stock, so to speak, for the whole post-war period up to about 1975, the age was steady at around 14 years. That meant that as plant and equipment went out of business, it was replaced. And so the stock never got older. But today, that period is about 14 years. Today, it's about 26 years. So the lack of investment of government investment has redounded in an incredible aging of the government capital. And to put it in layperson's terms, the Corps of Civil Engineers talking about the upshot of this, because it's come up in this whole business of Trump's supposed and non-real infrastructure programs, they say that there has been so little expenditure on infrastructure just to make up the difference of a, what should have been spent. It will now take $4 trillion, $4 trillion, which is about a quarter of the economy, maybe but, between a quarter and a fifth of the economy. But we should say $4 trillion is about what they spent on the invasion in Iraq. So it's not like it isn't there. Very good. It's not that it can't be afforded. And a very interesting political question would be, given that so much of the income and therefore wealth has been built up by redistribution rather than production, one thing we can certainly be thinking about in a way that would have been more difficult before is flat out redistribution from the rich, just a wealth tax. And that is something that could take place or much bigger taxes of the rich, that could take place without hurting investment. We used to be told we can't tax the rich because they won't invest. But since they're not investing anyway and simply ripping us off, we have that easy way forward. It's not a permanent way, but it's an easy way forward. Well, we've really literally almost run out of time, and we didn't get to the other political aspects that I want to talk to you about, Robert Brenner. Maybe we'll save it for another podcast where we can get into the political consequences and, you know, let's say the Democratic Party and its neoliberal leadership that's fighting with its social democratic base and what this means, especially in terms of the economic landscape that you've laid out. Is there any final thing you want to just say about these neoliberalism that would kind of entice people to hold with uh, bated breath for the next one? Well, yeah. I think what we would normally be doing now in talking about neoliberalism is talking about neoliberal politics. But I would just want to state the basic structure here that we would have to limb out in a further conversation. If we're saying our point is that what is going on today is not investment in the real economy to grow, and the capitalists get a big share of that growth. That's not happening. What's happening is redistribution and just straight ripoff. So that means that it requires government, above all, and political parties who 
control the government to make this happen. And so how has that come about? What I want to emphasize is that the way this has really been dictated by finance, dictated by the top capitalists, and what the Republican Party found in the 80s and what the Democratic Party found in the 90s, that the way to proceed in this new order was to take the lead in this political redistribution, Reagan taxes, Clinton finance. The deal is, of course, that on the one hand, the politicians and the political parties provide the conditions, political conditions, for this upward redistribution. On the other hand, the rich, the financiers, provide the funds for the politicians to compete politically. And so it is this deal that has allowed for the forging of a very tight alliance. It's no longer the economy over here, politics over here. It's politics and the economy as merged. And what that means is that the capitalist's economy depends on the active participation of these political parties in allowing them to go on and vice versa. The parties depend on support from financiers. One final point. Listeners should think of the implications of this. This means that that comes first. There's no way that the political parties can ignore the needs of finance. If they do, they will not get funding. Simple as that. And so what it means is that people are saying, well, the Democrats don't really understand. They need to go back to the working class and provide the working class what it needs to be able to win elections. The problem is to provide the workers what they need, they have to pay for that. And what the financiers say is, you just try paying workers in the form of welfare money that could be going to us, and you will find yourself in a very interesting position about fundraising. And when Obama tried this for the tiniest little bit, people may have heard him on television and stuff, people saying, well, what Obama's doing is hardly anything. Why are they pissed at him? He needs to do that to keep the support of his base. And the financiers would say, I'd say on Charlie Rose, sorry, no, he's really attacking finance, and we can't have it. And what is meant, actually, is that in the period since 2009, the Republicans, although the Democrats and Republicans have spent ever more, of course, at elections, the actually Republicans are doing a lot better in raising money. And so the Democrats, who are being outspent by 70 percent, are not about to go hurt the financiers by supporting workers. And there is just no chance that that's going to happen, not because the Democrats don't see it, but because they can't do it and keep their base. Thank you, Robert. In finance. Thank you, Robert Brenner. And of course, as you've left it, it means you're going to have to come back because I can think of a million questions to ask you right now about the way forward for people to upend this, if that's possible. But we'll save it for the next podcast. Thanks for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thank you very much, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. 
Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Thank you.